you will, get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel. Joel. Those minor prophets are so hard to find sometimes. <laughs> We're going to go through the book of Joel tonight. We've gone through other minor prophets, and we've seen a pretty similar theme in each of the minor prophets. Uh, as we've looked at them, we've noticed some very unique things about them, but uh, really the overall message is that God loves Israel, but God is also just and will bring about judgment against them for their sins. Uh, but in each of them, we've noticed how God eventually gets around to words of hope that God is going to restore and, and help Israel come back from their fall uh, to a rejuvenation of relationship that God is going to then bless Israel after he destroys them. Well, Joel is no different. Uh, it's a shorter book. Only three chapters, and really you can break it up into three different sections. There's desolation, there's an invitation, and then there's restoration. So, very simple message of this book. Uh, in, as we read through it, uh, it becomes very clear uh, that that is what it's all about. It starts off with this picture of desolation. Imagine walking outside, looking up into the sky, and seeing 65 billion locusts swarming and coming toward the harvest. That's the largest uh, plague of locusts that is on record in history. It's two football fields wide, 14 miles long, 65 that's ten times the number of people on the earth moving toward your country to devour and destroy. They destroy so much that there's nothing left. There's no leaves. There's not even stems on the leaves. There's no grass. There's nothing after they're done. He says in verse 4 of Joel chapter 1, What the cutting locust left... The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Just complete destruction and desolation at the hands of insects coming and devouring. And Joel starts out his book saying, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Have you ever seen a plague of such magnitude? And he says, tell it to your children. Tell it to your children's children. And then they'll tell it to another generation. Remember this work of judgment that God has brought against you with this huge plague. Of locusts. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. Lament, you virgins, wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Verse 8. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Verse 11. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. 
pomegranate, palm, apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, cry out to the Lord. A picture of uh, devastation. And he's calling for the people to lament over this horrible event that has taken place, this huge plague that has come and destroyed all the crops and all the vegetation in all the land. Complete devastation. And, and he wants them to consider this. Think about this desolation that has come upon you. And then in verse 16 it tells us of after that, of course, comes famine and drought. Everything's been dried up and destroyed in verses 16 through 20. And now fires are burning up. There's all kinds of events that are taking place and destruction happening. Consider, God is bringing all this about in Israel. As He promised that He would in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if they turn away from Him, He said He will correct them by sending various plagues on them to try to get them to turn away from their sin and to straighten up and follow after the ways of the Lord. Consider this suffering. Consider this pain. And turn from your ways. Cry out to the Lord. Call to Him for salvation. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. In chapter 2, we see a call for a, a future devastation that's even worse than what they're experiencing right now. He says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them though the year, through the years of all generations. He says, sound the trumpet. There's the day of the Lord coming. It is near. And he says there's this thick darkness and gloom as this people approach. It's just a mass of people that are coming in. And as you go through uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 2, you see God describing a people that are coming like this swarm of locusts. But he also says they're, like, they're running like horses run. And as they run, they're very disciplined. They're not running into each other. They're running straight ahead where they're supposed to go. And as they come, they, they climb and scale the walls. No walls can protect you. They come inside of the windows. I mean, it's very much a relating a picture of an army that's like these locusts that are flying and able to overcome any obstacle to get what they want. And verse 11 says, the Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Really, this whole section is like something out of a horror movie. As you look at, at the judgment that is to come, the judgment of the locust was bad enough, but now there's a judgment to come where there's this army that is... is coming in and it's unstoppable and it's going to just destroy and you see it from afar and you know 
the Lord is in control of it and he's bringing it about. He's bringing this kind of judgment on everybody. And it says, uh, before them, people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Everybody's just looking and they don't know what to do. They're discouraged. They're, they're, they're dumbfounded. They're stuck. What are we going to do in response to this army? There's just no hope for salvation. All of this is trying to give us the picture that the one who stands against God needs to be terrified. They need to be terrified. Because the army that God has control of is capable of complete and utter destruction and there is no escaping it. Just like this locust was able to come through and devour the land and eat up everything so God's army can come through and destroy everyone and everything. You see in this the picture of desolation. And that gets us to the next section where even after there's all this this despairing words of judgment, there are words of hope. Verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Notice he calls for the people. He says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart and I might relent. He says, come to me with fasting, with weeping, with mourning over the sins that you've committed. With all your heart return to me. And notice he says, rend your heart and not your garments. The rend means tear. Tear your hearts, not your garments. In those days, it was very common for people to tear their garments in response to some catastrophe that's happened to them and, and to sit in sackcloth and ashes or, or maybe to do this over their sins. And God says, I don't want you tearing your, your garments. I don't care about that. I want you to tear your hearts. What a picture that is of true repentance. And this is what God wants from His people. He doesn't just want this outward showing of repentance. He wants an inward change in their hearts. That they return to God and find salvation from this horrible judgment that is to come. We notice the words that sound a lot like the words God told Moses. It, it transitions into the characteristic of God. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. God does not want to destroy anybody. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. But his justice demands it if they refuse to repent. So he's calling for them. Rend your hearts. Tear your hearts open. Save yourselves. And, and allow me to, to save you from this devastation. Gather all the people. Assemble them all together. Uh, have a fast. Let the priest weep and say, uh, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword. Let everybody come together and shout to God for salvation. 
Verse 18 transitions into the third section. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. God, God relents of the locust plague, and he says, I'm bringing you uh, all the food and all the drink and all the oil and everything that you need. And he even says in verse 24, the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. My people shall never again be put to shame. He says he's going to restore everything that was lost. And he's going to bring his people back from this desolation. And they're going to praise God's name. And then he starts talking about a time when his people will never again be put to shame because it says, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. What a, what a statement that is. That God is going to pour down rain on the thirsty land and God is going to dwell with his people so that they will never again be put to shame. Well, This is actually talking about something that is future. And we start to see that as we go into verse 28. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Every, even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in heaven and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord Calls. Notice how he, he, he talks about after I restore the grain and the wine and all these things that the locust has eaten up, there is coming a day when I will do this again. When I will save my people again and I will be in their midst and I will pour out my spirit on them and they will be prophets. Now, not many people were prophets in those days. That was not a common thing to be a prophet. We don't have very many prophets really considering the huge timeline in the Old Testament there's only a few, a handful of men who had the relationship with God to be called prophets of God. And here God says, I'm going to be with you like I'm with my prophets. I'm going to bless you. And he, he gives this image like he pours out rain on this thirsty land and brings all this grain and all this fruit and all this vegetation. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He will be with his people as abundantly as the rain and as abundantly as all the blessings of the earth. And he will provide for his people and they will be saved from this horrible future judgment that he talked about in chapter 2. He goes on in chapter 3 continuing to talk about this restoration language, the, the future restoration. When there is a bigger judgment that is coming, he says... 
He will destroy all of his enemies, but he will save his people on that day. They will find refuge. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's a lot like Amos. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. A picture of God gathering all his people and saving them from this annihilation that's about to take place and providing for them everything that they need. Verse 18, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come, from, come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water of the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. In chapter 3, what we have is a picture of this restoration. But as we look at it more closely, what we see is a lot of, of discussion about God judging the enemies of his people and saving his people. And all those who are his people who die, he is going to uh, avenge their blood and destroy all of those who are, who are against his people. It's a picture overall of restoration and salvation from the mighty hand of God who is coming to attack and destroy all of his enemies. Well, as we look at this book and we see the, the idea of it, the whole picture of it. We see the desolation that, that is promised and the desolation that's taken place. We see an invitation that, that they can be saved from desolation. We see a fulfillment of that, of that promise of uh, restoration. And then we see a future promise of restoration uh, for God's people who will turn to him for refuge. Even though the nations will rise up against his people, he will save them. Well, what does all of this have to do with us. Well, as we look at this, when we see this day of future judgment, hopefully we understand that that hasn't really happened yet, not, not in the fullest sense. There is a judgment coming that is uh, an absolute judgment that will only, only those who turn to the Lord will be saved from. But as we think about the book of Joel... Really, we understand this to be a key text in the Bible because this is the text that the apostles turned to on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You turn over to Acts chapter 2, you notice that this is where the apostles go. Not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, not any of those bigger books, not Daniel. They go to the prophet Joel. And this is where Peter goes for his very first sermon. They get up there and they start speaking in tongues in different languages that the people understand in their own language. And, and some people think that they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, this is exactly what the prophet Joel said was going to happen. Look at verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth below, and blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a critical part of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. That there is a judgment that is coming. And, and all of these wonders that you see before you are, is the fulfillment of Joel letting you know that that judgment day is coming. And that God is now wanting you to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. ...from that judgment day. See how this was a, a critical message... Uh, ...in the first century... As, ...as the church is being developed... ...as the Holy Spirit is poured out... ...from Jesus to the apostles... ...and they preach and teach... ...the truth about what Jesus has done. You go through the rest of this sermon... ...you see these apostles... ...pointing to David and, and pointing to Jesus... ...as the fulfillment... ...of the promises that were made to David that there would be a king who would sit on David's throne, who would be given all rule and authority and who would rule forever. And he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know that therefore for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter reminds everybody of Joel's prophecy and the, all the destruction and all the salvation that were promised when the Spirit was poured out. And then he tells them that Jesus is the King and the Messiah. Now listen to the people's response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God, our God, calls to himself. Did you, did you catch it? As you're reading through that, the response of the people at the, the, the preaching of Joel, was it to rend their, heart, their garments? No. It says they were cut to the heart. Their hearts were cut. And so they decide, we need to call on the name of the Lord. And then they ask Peter, what, what, what do we need to do? Why didn't Peter just say, well, call on the name of the Lord? Why don't you say, you say the sinner's prayer? What he says is, repent. You, your heart's been cut. Now I want you to repent. I want you to change your heart. I want you to change your mindset away from the ways of this world and toward the will of God. I want you to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And it says this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will pour out the promises of restoration 
on those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They will receive the gift, the promised blessing that was made to Abraham. They will receive this if they make this decision. And it says, and on that day, those who received his word were baptized and 3,000 souls were added. So you see how Joel is this key text for us in the Bible. It, it helps us understand what has taken place in the New Testament. Why there was this surge in Christianity because everybody knows there is a greater day of judgment ahead. And they have heard the warning, the horror story about that judgment. And they don't want anything to do with it. And they have seen their sin and they have decided to tear their hearts, let it tear their hearts to repent and to change their ways and to submit to the will of God to find salvation from this horrible day of judgment. Well, obviously, that promise still remains for us. As we read through this and we learn about what happens on the day of Pentecost, hopefully we understand that that, that continued to happen throughout the book of Acts. When we get to chapter 28, there's Paul in prison and... He's in like house arrest and we don't know what's going to happen in his trial and then the story just ends and we don't know what happens next because the truth continues to spread. The church continues to grow. Uh, people continue to rend their hearts, not their garments, and turn to God and find salvation from the day of judgment, waiting for the day of the Lord to come. So our message is, we can't just tear our garments. We have to tear our hearts. We have to repent and change before it's eternally too late. Do you know anybody who has torn their garments over their sins? Have you ever torn your garments? Have you ever recognized your sin or uh, study the Bible and learned about a sin that you've committed and felt guilty about it. Expressed your guilt and your, your, your feelings of remorse and maybe even come forward and uh, asked for people to pray. And we've seen that. We've seen people do that. And then Monday morning, wake up looking for that next opportunity to do the very thing we felt bad about. When the opportunity comes, we enter into it. Why? Well, we put on a good show, right? We acted like we were, we were repentant, right? Like we, we were sorry and sorrowful for what we've done. But we didn't really tear our hearts. We didn't really make a change in our lives. You know, sometimes I see this uh, in my children they get caught <laughs> for doing something wrong. There's some tears that are coming, trying to avoid that punishment. But then the next chance they get, they do what they want to do. There's no real change. There's no real sorrow 
about making the mistakes and doing things wrong. So what's our feeling about sin? What sins are continually going on in our lives? And how do we really feel about it? Are we broken over our sins? Do we have tender hearts that are remorseful over the sins that we have committed? Or is it all just an outward show? In the book of Acts, we see that they were truly broken because of what they had done, because they understood what has just happened. Because of their sin, they crucified their Lord and Savior. They killed the most perfect human to have ever lived, the most righteous, the most compassionate, the most wonderful. There's a song that we sing. I was not in the garden when he knelt to God and prayed. I did not kiss him on the cheek, right? When Jesus was betrayed, I, I, I did not do a single thing to hurt God's only son. But every time I sin on earth, I feel like I'm the one. Those feelings, those emotions, that sorrow... Is supposed to be inside of us when we sin. The feeling as though I've just struck my hammer against the nail going into the hand of the Son of God should be there. And it should hurt. And we should have that desire not to do that because we know He's not worthy of that. His love, His compassion, His mercy has been shown to us. And we've received it. And He offers to us complete restoration from our sins. So why, oh why, would we tear our garments and put on a good show without really, truly, honestly being committed to making a change and putting away the sins that are prevalent in our lives? This idea challenges me to think more deeply about my sins and my response to it. But it also encourages me as we study through this text and we see God offers restoration to all those who truly turn to Him in repentance. All those who truly open up their hearts and let it be torn up who seek to overcome the sins of their lives, who seek to please God with all their heart. He offers to them to be with them, to pour out all His blessings upon them, and to provide them with refuge on the day of judgment. It's available. And the only question is, where is our heart? What is our attitude toward our sin? What is our attitude toward God's grace? This is an amazing book. It gives us pictures of God's judgment. It gives us pictures of God's uh, invitation that He is offering, that He is a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it gives us a picture of God's willingness to completely restore 
all of those who turn to him in repentance. And now the question is really just up to us. What are we going to do? Will we give God our hearts truly and be devoted to him throughout our lives? If you're here tonight and you need to rend your hearts and we can help you in any way, we'd love to do that. But if you just need to rend your heart and you don't need our help and you don't want to put on a show, then don't do that, but be changed. And tomorrow, do the same thing. And the next day, do the same thing. This is why we gather weekly and remember the Lord's death, burial and resurrection on the first day of the week so that we might remember what he did for us and the huge disappointment it is when we sin against him. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to the invitation and there's any way we can help you, please come as we stand and sing.